Our Lord and our God, we do come to you this morning and what we have just sung is our prayer. Uh, that you would take your truth and that you would not only help us to understand it, but that you would plant it deep in us. That you would shape and you would fashion us in your likeness and that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to heed your word today and by your spirit live it. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. So have you ever played the what if game? You know, what if I had a million dollars or let's just even up the stakes a little bit. What if overnight you became a multimillionaire? And you'd ask yourself, what would I spend that money on? Now, of course, that would be sort of a, a fun exercise to, to do, I think, if, if we could. And, uh, you know, to, to think about those kind of things may sort of excite us. You may think, wow, of all the things you could buy and all the things you could do, everything, you know, all these things that you've always wanted to do, but you've never been able to. Now, all of a sudden, you would have the power to do that. But for others, you may feel a deep sense of responsibility with that, and you think, wow, multi millions of dollars, you know, that, that's great, and yes, it would be good to do things, but I also sort of feel the weight of responsibility that someday I will stand before God and I will give an account of what I did with all these resources. But it's, it's interesting, though, as you look at the Bible and as it speaks about wealth, it really never speaks about wealth in terms of dollar amounts but rather in terms of our attitude and our perspective regarding wealth. You know, it, it's wealth is not uh, defined as a certain tax bracket like our, our government will oftentimes describe it, but how you use that which has been given to you. You know, I, uh, maybe uh, you've read the parable of the, the Ten Talents, and, and you think about that, about how God or how the, uh, the owner gave different amounts of money to his different servants. One had one talent, one had five, and one had ten talents. And yet when that master returned, he held them all accountable. And it didn't matter about the amount. And what's interesting is, is the one that really fell into his judgment was the one that had the least amount of money. And, and you may know people like that who have um, really, uh, their attitude really shows uh, what they think about God and, and, and about their attitude about wealth. I mean, have you ever known anybody who has been extremely wealthy? But if you didn't know that, you could never tell by their lifestyle. I know in the first church I served in after seminary, we had an elder who was part of that church, who I think their family was worth like $34 million or something like that. And uh, they had had a successful business and sold it. And now it fell upon that elder to, to care for that money. But what's interesting is, is if you looked at his lifestyle, it was very simple. He lived in the old home place. Uh, he drove a station wagon. You know, he's just a very simple guy. As a matter of fact, his full-time job was to manage that money so that he could make more money and give it away to missionaries and those men who were going to prepare for the gospel ministry to be preachers. That's, that's what he did. And so you looked at him and, and you, wouldn't, you wouldn't tell the difference. But maybe you've known other people who have a whole lot less money than that. Still, they're well off. 
but they have a whole lot less money than that. And, you know, they're the kind of people that are always talking about the boats that they purchased and the vacations they went on and the things that they did. And money seems to consume them. And so when we when we think of wealth, we need to be careful that we don't allow our American mindset to define what the Bible's talking about. Because it's talking about no matter what we have, you know, uh, what is our attitude and what is our use towards that which God has given to us. And what James tells us is, is that our view of material possessions can really serve as an indicator of hidden worldliness in our own hearts. And that's what he's been talking about. We've, it's been a while since we've been in James, so you may sort of have forgotten that, but that's one reason why I wanted to read uh, from chapter 4, verse 11, through chapter 5, verse 6, because James addresses people who are struggling with pride and harboring worldliness in their hearts, unknowing to them. And he's, and he's trying to tell us, he says, look, you want to know if that worldliness is snuck into your heart? Look at the words you use in verses 11 and 12. Look at the way that you speak to one another. Or he says, you know, look at verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4. You know, just your attitude about the future. Are you being presumptuous, thinking that you are in control of your, your life and that you're the one that makes the decisions? Or is your heart one that's given to the Lord and knowing that he is the one that sovereignly oversees your life? And then now, today, he wants to talk to us about the use and our attitudes of money. It sort of tells us uh, the condition of our hearts. So James is reminding us that our attitude toward and our use of our money is a major indicator of either our Christianity or our worldliness. And I suspect that for many professing Christians in this room today, it's an indication of both. That we do have a spiritual desire to follow the Lord, but on the other hand, we see a lot of the world in our hearts, including the man who's speaking to you this morning. We need to recognize and realize what we are, and we are rich, and that brings certain challenges to us. And so he, he, James writes to his readers and he says some very strong words. Now, to help sort of bring this out a little bit, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read from uh, Gene Peterson's uh, paraphrase on this passage because it, it might sort of help us to see what he's saying and how strong these words are. He said, a, a final word to you arrogant rich. Take some lessons and lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your stomach, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you piled up is just judgment. All the workers you have exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you use and abuse are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemned and murdered perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. 
So he speaks some very strong words. But I think we have to ask ourselves, who is James speaking to? And for some people, this is a huge deal. Is he talking about rich Christians who are abusing other people? Or is he talking about those who are unbelievers? Uh, because if they are people who don't believe in God, then James is not speaking to the church. And this passage has nothing to say to us. At least that's how some people would propose. But to that point, let me say to you, you if you look at the evidence, it could go either way. You know, I, I personally think that he's probably speaking to those outside the church. Those that don't know God, that are godless and have no regards for God. And so, like I said, some people want to say, well, because that's the case and that has really nothing to do with us. But I would argue otherwise. And the reason I say that is because James is sort of speaking in the tone of an Old Testament prophet. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, God would send his prophets sometimes to, to speak judgment upon the nations as well, such as Assyria or Babylon or Nineveh or many of the other nations. Now, you might think, well, that's sort of useless, is it not? I mean, why proclaim judgment upon these nations? They don't believe in God. They're not going to repent. Well, okay, Nineveh did repent once. And just for a few years, but okay. But typically they don't repent. So why would God take the time to do that? Well, for several reasons. First, because he was bearing witness that he is God and, and uh, he is going to bring about that which he has spoken. And so it reminds the nations at the time that God's prophecies come true that what he said is true because he is a true and a living God. But second of all, as the people of God hear these proclamations of judgment against the nations, it gives them comfort. Because oftentimes, the things that the nations were doing wrong, they were doing against God's people. And so they're going like, oh, great. You know, we know that these things are happening to us, but they're going to come to an end because our God is going to come to our aid. But there's a third reason, and I think this is the one that's most apropos to us in this passage, is that as the prophet was making the mind of God plain about the sin of the nations, it was also a warning to God's people to not commit those sins as well. And so James is doing the same as he's proclaiming the, the judgment against these godless rich people. He is saying to you, and you Christians, what about you and the use of your wealth as well? Do you fall into the same sin that these, that these heathens do as well? And so you need to examine your heart and see where your heart is with the Lord. So by, by facing a, a clear-cut case of those who have wealth at their disposal, James teaches all of us in respect of whatever resources, however small or great that we have, that God has entrusted to us, that by um, exposing such glaring abuses, he teaches us how we ought to use our wealth in humility and as we walk with God, and also to warn us against the pitfalls. So I want to talk this morning about the pitfalls that can come if we make wealth our God, if we uh, attach our hearts too much to the things of this world. So first of all, there's uh, a couple of things that happen. Um, that oftentimes, if our hearts are set too much upon wealth, we will use that wealth to please ourselves. We see that in verses uh, 2, 3, and, and 5. And, and the first thing we see in verses 2 and 3 is um, that we will begin to hoard wealth. 
that if we set our hearts too much upon wealth, we will begin to hoard it. And so James condemns this attitude of hoarding. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. So he's speaking about people who are accumulating wealth. Um, But really more than that, it's really the idea of hoarding. Now, when I use that word hoarding, I bet what pops into your mind is that TV show that was on a, a few years back, right? Hoarders, right? And they used to send these professionals into these homes and, you know, you would go into these homes and it would just shock you. I mean, it wasn't just that their house was cluttered. I mean, we're talking about piles of just stuff. And, I mean, some of it, you look at it and it'd be like going clear up to the ceiling. And, and maybe, maybe not, they'd have this little path woven through their house. And we look at that and we say, wow, I can't believe that. But you know what? How different is sometimes our attitude regarding the things that we have? Now, our houses are not like packed up to the ceiling with stuff, I'm sure. You know, it looks very nice. But, you know, because we think we have that under control, we don't think that maybe we struggle with the same thing. But think with the excesses that we have in our homes and in our garages. You know, we have so much stuff that we oftentimes can't get around to using it all. And so what do we do? We put it in closets. We put it up in the attic. We maybe have a storage shed we get so we can put our stuff in. And if something's really valuable, we might put it in a safety deposit box or a safe that we have in our homes. I think our closets teach us a lot about our tendency to hoard. You know, most of us, I think, uh, or at least most of us that are older, such as myself, I grew up in an era and a time where houses were built much differently. You know, if you've ever lived in a home or, or seen a home that was built in the early 1900s, maybe late 1800s, or maybe even the mid-1900s, 1950s or something, if you look at their closets, what are they like? Way smaller. You know, recently I was with somebody and we were looking at a house and it was built in the early 1900s, most likely, and, uh, and it had really tiny closets. And you think, where did they put all their stuff? But the reality is they didn't have all that stuff. It was a very different time. And as we store the things we have, you know, they get rusty or they get eaten by moths or they decay in some other way because it, it's a, an improper use of the possessions that God has given us. And that's why James says they're moth-eaten or they corrode. You know, hoarding by definition is the unused accumulation of wealth. So it's just wealth that's not being used. And their rotting is a testimony to their being kept from fruitful use. Now, this is true not only with material possessions, but it also can be with our money. And I'm not just talking about if we spend a lot of money on ourselves or we buy a lot of toys or you know, things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Even I think when we seek to be responsible as Christians, we can struggle with hoarding and not even know it. You know, in the name of good money management and wise financial planning for our future, 
we can attempt to build a large enough nest egg that we can take care of ourselves in our retirement as if we need to provide for ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with saving for the future. The Bible talks about that. But I think where the attitude can sometimes cross over into a worldly way of thinking is to think things like this. You know what? Social Security is not going to be there. You know, or if it is, it, it may not be there uh, for very long. And so I need to make sure that I take care of myself. And so we begin to save money and sock away money uh, and maybe even to provide for a standard of living that we're accustomed to even now. But one of the problems with hoarding is that it is a denial of the proper use of trusting God and his provision. It's one thing to be responsible and to save for the future. That's good. Don't, don't mishear me, okay? But if our attitude is that it relies upon me and if I don't do it, it's, I'm not going to have what I need, then that's where we've stepped over the line and we've said, you know, King Jesus is not sufficient to provide for everything that our need. You know, brothers and sisters, God created all things and he sustains all of his creatures. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, look, look at the birds of the air. Look at the grass of the fields. They're like here today and gone tomorrow. But, you know, God takes care of them. And, and so we need to trust him. So, you know, I think it's good for us to plan for the future. But when we get to the point where we think that our future well-being depends upon us or where we ignore present, real present needs of other people because we're saving for the possible need of the future, then we have fallen into a worldly mindset and attitude. Randy Alcorn uh, said it well. He said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously. Larry Burkett, he was a financial planner of years ago. He's now in glory with the Lord. But he used to talk about the need for Christians to put a cap on their standard of living. To say, stop and think about what you need and maybe add a little bit more to that just to be safe, that you didn't misplan. And then just be, sa be satisfied with that. And then take all that extra that you don't need and give that away to others. Or give it for the building of God's kingdom or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, that sounds so simple. But, you know, there's almost something in our hearts that are always pushing us towards more, right? I mean, I think about the fact that I was uh, praying about a car a while back. You know, I don't really drive that much. I live in a small community. I can walk a lot of places. And so I just needed a basic car. And God provided a basic car. I mean, it didn't have power anything. You roll the windows down. It doesn't even have cruise control. I mean, it is basic, basic, basic. It did come with the steering wheel, praise the Lord. But anyway, but that's it. And, you know, it gets great gas mileage, which is what a pastor needs. You know, so it gets like 33 miles a gallon in town. So you can't ask for more than that. But, you know, I had a friend who was selling a car that was in great shape. They were selling it at a reasonable price. And I have this wonderful car that meets all my needs in the driveway. And my thought was, maybe I should buy that car. I could sell my other car for almost the same price. I wouldn't have much more money into it. And I'd have all this luxury. And I'd have all these gadgets and things. It'd be so cool. And I thought, what am I saying here? But you know, it's almost like those thoughts pop into our heads without us even knowing it. Because our hearts are always desiring more and more and more and more. 
And when we hoard, we are improperly using the wealth that the Lord has given us. And we show that our focus is more on making this world our home than how our wealth can be used for eternity. And how easy it is for us to scrutinize our budget when it comes to maybe meeting the need of somebody else or giving to the church budget or whatever. And yet, when it comes to spending on ourselves, how often we just sort of spend that without scrutinizing that at all. So, you know, why is it that we hoard? Well, look at verse 5. James said, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You know, James is referring to a lifestyle of extravagant comfort and a self-indulgent life. Uh, it's, a, it's a life without self-denial, offering no resistance to anything that will bring us comfort and enjoyment. So James is specifically condemned self-extravagance in our use of wealth. What he's attacking is a life without self-denial. So any uh, pattern of the use of wealth in our life that is only focused upon ourselves or we spend things to please ourselves, then we need to question that. You know, because God has called us to learn to deny ourselves. So we need to ask ourselves questions like this. What have we given up to support the work of the church or missions or to care for the poor or others that we know? We should not be asking, what have I given? But we should be asking, what have I given up? What has it cost me? Because we can be very generous in what we've given and we can be very extravagant in the amounts that we give and yet it cost us absolutely nothing. We still have both done the things we've wanted there with the poor or with the church and also we meet all of our, our own needs. But uh, we need to live our lives in such a way that would deny our own desires. If our spending and our Christian if our spending and our Christian giving does not have a component of self-denial, then we're sinning. And this is especially the case in light of the need of the spread of the gospel around the world. And so, you know, I wonder, uh, as we look at our money, and here again I'm talking about the preacher as well, you know, I wonder how much of our money in our congregation is thrown away on personal trivial things throughout the year. I would hate to even examine my own budget and see probably how much I spend on that. You know, but are we giving up in, in our giving? So it doesn't matter what level of income we have, whether we're what Americans would consider poor, whether we're considered very wealthy or somewhere in between. What really is important is the attitude of our hearts. And, we, and, and as one uh, commentator put it, he said, you know, we must keep the tightest hold on all luxury spending. He said, the more we surround ourselves with possessions which only minister to our creature comforts, the less we are likely to cultivate the spiritual trimness of physique which keeps, up, which keeps us fit in the battle of holiness. In other words, the more we just spend upon ourselves, the less we're going to be thinking about being trim and living a holy life as much as we are going to be pleasing ourselves. Then he goes on, he says, when we allow such wealth as we possess to focus attention on ourselves and our satisfactions, we are ministering to this, that spirit of pleasure and desire and wanting for self, which is the root of all unholiness and unfaithfulness, as we read in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. 
And, and not only that, but James tells us that there will be a day of reckoning that will occur. I mean, if you look back in, in verse 3, he talks about how the corrosion of these things that you're just lying there in your house and not even using, it's going to be evidence against you. You know, he talks about um, in verse 5 how you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You know, here again, reminding us of the parable of the ten talents or the man, the parable that Jesus told about the man who said, I have so much stuff, I need to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And it says that God appeared to that man and he said, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so we need to be careful and to understand that as we think about our wealth, it's not just if all of a sudden we have a million dollars overnight or multi-million dollars, but even if we have very modest means that we will stand and we will be accountable for the things that the Lord uh, brings into our lives and he, he gives us to use. The second thing, and this is a much shorter point, so hang with me. Uh, also, would if we, use our, if we are um, too attached to our wealth, not only will we spend it for our own pleasure, but we will use our wealth to hurt other people as well. Look at verses 4 and 6. He talks about, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Now the law of God required the fair and honest compensation of employees. The wages of a hired man were not to be kept from him, even for one night. You're supposed to pay the person the same day. And Deuteronomy 24 really drives this home about the poor. And he says, you need to, and God says, you need to give him his wages before sundown. And the reason for that is they didn't have credit cards. They didn't have these huge bank accounts. You know, they worked that day so that they could get money, so that they could then go to the market and buy the food that they needed or the food for their family. And so um, they, they needed that. And, and likewise, we need to examine our own hearts. There are ways that I think that we can defraud other people uh, and not even know it. Now, obviously, with this example that we read in James, you know, we need to be careful. If we're an employer or we're a manager and we're hiring people, that we don't take advantage of other people, that we don't try to hire them for the lowest amount of money that we can, you know, we should be fair in our wages to others. We also ought to be careful that we're not requiring them to work, you know, so many hours that it places a burden upon them. But even as employees, you've got to be careful that you're giving your, your employer an honest day's work. If you get a salary or you get paid but you're not really doing your job, you're stealing from your employer. And this ought not to be. Uh, also, we need to be careful that we are honest in our financial dealings, that every honorable debt must be paid. If we are a person who is accumulating debt and not paying that debt, then we are stealing from others so that we might have a life of luxury. So we need to make sure that we pay the debts that we have. And there are, I think, very few Christians who would steal money from another person. But how many Christians will borrow a book from somebody or you know, some other, uh, uh, I don't know what else they would borrow, but if they borrowed something from someone and didn't return it, is that not the same thing as stealing from them? Or, you know, I don't know many Christians that would shoplift in a grocery store. But, you know, how often are we sometimes honest not to 
or, or, or tempted to not be completely honest on our tax return and account all the money that uh, is owed. You know, we have to be very careful. And, and, and how far would we go to, um, to, to steal from others? Well, if you look at verse 6, James says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous. He doesn't resist you. Now, that, that's, that's strong language. It's, it's a little difficult, though, to know exactly what James is talking about. Is he talking about literal murder? I mean, like Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Were, were, were these landowners literally killing their employees? Or maybe they weren't paying them the money for food, and so they were starving to death. I don't know. It, it might be that the, simp, the rich were simply exploiting their workers and murdering them in the sense of you know, hating your brother. How Jesus said, if you hate your brother, it's the same thing as murder. We don't know, but regardless of that, Whenever we steal from others or take from them, uh, James here warns us that the Lord of hosts sees this and he makes a judgment against you. That phrase, uh, Lord of hosts, comes straight from Isaiah 5, 9, where the wealthy were stealing the land from the poor, which would have been their inheritance from the Lord and also their source of income. And as a result, the poor were suffering this loss. Um, but he, he says here, you know, what can you do if you're being abused by your employer or by someone else? He said, understand that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, and that he will come to their defense. And so we can trust in him. And so, brothers and sisters, I think as we come to this passage, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? What, what do you love the most? Is your love for God? Is your love for your material possessions and your wealth? Where is your treasure? Matthew tells us that where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And having an unholy attachment to riches has always been a, a powerful snare, even for professing believers. And while wealth is not a sin in and of itself, sin comes in three ways, oftentimes through wealth. First, it comes in how we get our wealth. Do we get our wealth at the expense of our neighbors or other people? Secondly, it comes in our heart attitude towards wealth. Do we love that wealth, that worldly wealth, too much rather than loving God and fearing Him above all else? And thirdly, it comes in our use of wealth. Do we use the wealth we have primarily for eternal matters or to make this fallen world where we live more pleasant for ourselves? Do we spend our wealth primarily on eternal things? And do we even think about our wealth in that sense? Not giving God our leftovers, but thinking, how can I use just enough that I need so that I might use the rest for the building up of his kingdom? You know, Matthew 26 and you can read this this afternoon, is just a, a great example of that struggle that we have with our wealth. In Matthew 26, 6, it's a story about a woman who comes to Jesus. Matthew doesn't even give us her name. But she comes to Jesus and she pours precious oil upon his head to anoint him. It's worth like a year's wages. I mean, we're talking a lot of money here. And to her... It was an act of loving devotion to her God. To, to Jesus, it was a delight. As a matter of fact, he said, you know what? 
Everywhere that the gospel is preached, people are going to hear about this woman. So he received that uh, with great delight. But to his disciples, it was a waste of money. You know, that money could have been given to the poor. Why did she waste it and pour it on Jesus? And to Judas, it was the last straw. Because after this story about this woman in the following verses is where we read where Judas had had enough. And he went out and he betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Do you see the difference? You know, a heart that follows the Lord is one that gives him everything and that delights in doing so. But a heart that has been entrapped by the, the deceitfulness of wealth would even betray others just that they might get more money. Would we be surprised if, we, if only we could remember how often the Lord Jesus has taken second place in our lives and in our possessions? May God give us the grace to love him more and may that be evidenced in the way that we manage the wealth that he has given to us. Let's take just a moment of silence as we think about the things that we've heard from God's word this morning.